This program is a part of the Full Press Radio Network. Find this and all of Full Press Coverage's shows on fullpressradio.com or free on the Full Press Coverage app, available now on the Apple and Google Play stores. This is Amy Trask, and you are listening to Ira and Clark on the iTest for Tip. Welcome to this week's first installment of the iTest for Two. I'm Clark Judge. I'm Ira Kaufman. And we are, of course, Hall of Fame voters, joined each and every week by our Hall of Fame producer, Ian Glendon. And gentlemen, this is a unique broadcast because it's the first time this year we've done one following a Tampa Bay Bucks defeat. Ira, you live in Tampa. You cover the Bucks. How did that one go over in the city? Well, I wouldn't say there's panic, but there's concern, (laughs) Clark, because the defense, they can't stop anybody. Yeah. Now, the Rams are very good, and I don't think Mac Jones is a guy that's going to rip, shred the buck defense. But right now, Clark, pass rush is a problem. Richard Sherman's in town interviewing for a job. That tells you how desperate the Bucs are. Yeah, I know you're right about that. And since you mentioned Mac Jones, Ian, I know you're a Tom Brady fan. Some would say a honk. No, I'd say a fan. But that had to be tough on you, though you have another game, a more emotional game, as Ira referenced, coming up this week with the New England Patriots. It's uh, it's going to be the first time in my entire life that I'll root against Tom Brady, and I'm still not sure how I feel about that. But um, I guess when the time comes on Sunday, I, I will figure that out. But I still got a few days to, to sort through that uh, mess in my head right now. <laughs> well, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, Ira, we're going to have to revoke his Bucks credential for the next home game. Um, we'll get to that later this week. But as I said, it's a unique broadcast today, and it is because we get to speak to the author of a forthcoming book, a history, really of the NFL today, but the NFL today, as it began in 1975, and Ari, you remember it, and so do I, and the guest we have today is Rich Podolsky. Now, Rich, has a he's a prize-winning writer and reporter, and he goes back to the 1970s, Ari, when you started, when I started in the business, as a columnist for David Haberstam Sports Broadcast Journal. Also, from what I understand, an authority on 1960s and 70s music, and since he worked for the Philly Daily News, Maybe I can sneak in a question about Todd Rundgren and Utopia. But as I mentioned, he's also the author of a book that's coming out in early October, I think, entitled You Are Looking Live, How the NFL Today Revolutionized Sports Broadcasts. And Rich joins us today from Manhattan, New York, New York. Rich, thanks so much for being here. Hey, thanks, Clark. It's going to be fun talking to you guys. You well, actually for, know the show I'm talking about. Yeah, we do. And <laughs> we live through it. We watch it all the time. And first of all, I'll ask you the obvious question. You've done a lot of uh, work in the past. You've done a lot of work in uh, sports and sports business. 
why this particular subject? What fascinated you about this? Well, um, I was a writer on the show in 1977 and going forward for a few years. Uh, and I, I got to be close with uh, several of the people on the show, like Phyllis George and uh, Jimmy the Greek and Irv Cross. And uh, I loved working with Brian as well. Uh, and when Phyllis died a few years ago, it was, it was sudden. And uh, as I reconnected with a lot of the, my old CBS colleagues, uh, it really hit me the impact the show had on all of us. And then as I started to research a story for David Halberstam's uh, website, Sports Broadcast Journal, I talked to a guy named Bill Fitz, who was a early producer of the pregame show on CBS. And I realized how everything changed in 1975 when Bob Wessler took over as the head of CBS Sports. Everything. Before 75, the only thing that was alive were the games themselves. All the pregame shows were taped days in advance, and all the announcers were middle-aged white men. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and Wessler was a visionary, and part of his vision was not only to have the first live show of this kind, but to have a woman on it, and not just any woman. He picked the former Miss America in Phyllis George. I mean, who would nobody would do that even today. He also had the first person of color as a co-host in Irv Cross. And then he brought in Brent Musburger, who nobody knew. Brent was an unknown in 75. He was the sports director at WBBM in Chicago. He had done a little bit of sports spectacular the year before uh, and had done a few games for CBS. But he was virtually an unknown. And the three of these people worked together. They rehearsed together for weeks. They got to be friends. They, they went, hung out together. And the chemistry showed as soon as the show went on the air. The show was enormously popular. Uh, it won 13 Emmy Awards its first year. Nobody ever did that. Um, and it was not only important for its own sake, getting great ratings. People used to rush home from church to see it. Um, it was important for the NFL because it helped the league expand its fan base and overtake Major League Baseball as America's favorite sport. Rich, congratulations on the book. Can't wait to read it, Richard. Um, Rich, let's talk about Musburger for a second. Rich, this is a very Hall of Fame-centric show, Rich, and I think you know this. The Pete Rozelle Award, it's very prestigious. You get, you know, your place in Canton. Rich, Irv Cross has won this thing. Lindsey Nelson has won this thing. And Brent Musburger is still waiting for his day in the sun. Rich, do you understand what the problem is with Brent Musburger getting the Pete Rozelle Award? I, I really don't know. I, I don't know the, the politics involved. Uh, Brent certainly is one of the great broadcasters of all time. He was incredibly significant in making the NFL today work and be successful. Um, you know, Brent is, is in the, broad, uh, the sports broadcasting hall of fame. Um, but I, I don't know who selects for uh, the uh, NFL uh, award. 
uh, and I can't, I can't uh, tell you why. I wish I knew. Uh, and, you know, I, it's possible that, uh, that Brent is not the type of uh, person you want in the NFL Hall of Fame for the P. Roselle Award. But uh, on the Jimmy Greek, um, Jimmy the Greek, Rich Angle, um, look, yes, Rich, he, he brought gambling, you know, into the mainstream uh, at that point in the mid-70s. So, Rich, what, what was the NFL's reaction to Jimmy the Greek having a platform and a very popular one every week? Was there any pushback from the league towards Jimmy the Greek? There was a lot of pushback, but Bob Wessler uh, was willing to take a chance. Bob Wessler had a lot of equity built up with the CBS network because uh, previous to coming to run CBS Sports, he had run WBBM in Chicago as its general manager and taken their news from no number four to number one. Uh, and before that, he was the head of the CBS special uh, events unit with Waller Cronkite and uh, took Cronkite through conventions and elections and the funeral of JFK. He was uh, thought to be uh, the person to run the network in the future. Uh, so Wessler had a lot of equity built up with the network and he was willing to take chances because he thought he was right and he thought this is the time to do it. He brought the Greek in in 76, the second year of the show. The Greek was more famous than any anyone else on the show, even more famous than Phyllis, who had won uh, Miss America in 1971. The Greek um, had a syndicated column, the 300 newspapers. He had a, a syndicated radio show. Um, he was well known for winning over a million dollars way back in 1948 by betting on Harry Truman against Governor Dewey, uh, when his sister said, don't grow that mustache, Jimmy, it reminds people of Hitler. And he looked in the paper and saw Dewey had a mustache and thought, <laughs> oh my God, it's a toss up. And I'm getting 21 odds. <laughs> and uh, he was, the Greek was well known. He had a public relations company. Howard Hughes was his uh, number one client. The, the Greek was well known when he came to the network and uh, the, the, Pete Rosell's official stance was, we don't want anything to do with gambling. He had gone before Congress and testified that he thought only 2% of the viewers actually bet on the games. Well, when uh, CBS publicist Bino Cook heard him, him say that, Bino's response was, if that's true, they all live on my block. <laughs> <laughs> Vino Cook, one of the great sports personalities of all time. <laughs> We're speaking with Rich Podolsky, author of the forthcoming book, You Are Looking Live, How the NFL Today Revolutionized Sports Broadcasting. And Rich, I'll ask you a similar question um, about Phyllis George. I mean, that was revolutionary as well, introducing a woman to a broadcast, well, not booth, but certainly a broadcast show prior to an NFL game, was there pushback on that as well? We're not only getting a, a female in here, it's a former Miss America. What in God's name are we doing? And as it turns out, a great idea. It was a great idea, and, and I do think uh, a breakthrough idea. Uh, 
there, there had to be some pushback, although it wasn't uh, made public. Uh, I didn't remember reading any uh, negative uh, reviews in the papers back in 75 because she had already been successful before the show started doing uh, interviews with celebrity athletes, Dave Callens and uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Connors and Elvin Hayes. And um, in fact, uh, her interview with Dave Callens of the Celtics uh, was called the best national interview ever done with him by none other than Melissa Lucky of Sports Illustrated. Um, uh, Phyllis was terrific. Uh, she had a personality that just uh, exploded through the camera. Uh, she was gorgeous, but she didn't wear a lot of makeup. She had a softness to her and she was just instantly, instantly likable. And America fell in love with Phyllis. It was like they were dating her for the first year of the show. Uh, and she was single in those days. So uh, she was only 25 years old when she started. You know, Wessler's, uh, uh, Wessler, by the way, I, who I think should be in the Broadcasting Hall of Fame and is not uh, because he left CBS shortly after. But Wessler said sports at that time was a male ghetto. And he thought there was uh, room for, for women, not just to, because they might attract women, other women uh, to, to watch, but because it made better chemistry and better chemistry attracts more people. You know, way back in 1970, uh, the NF uh, CBS pregame show uh, had a woman on the show named Marjorie Margolis, and uh, she did pretty damn well uh, producing and, and going on air doing the features. And uh, uh, her producer, Bill Fitz, was called into the president's office and said, we got to take her off the air. And he said, why? He said, well, Frank Gifford uh, has this girl named Carol Howie. She's the Winston cigarette girl. He wants us to put her on the air because she lost her commercials because they can't do cigarette commercials on television. So they replaced somebody who was totally competent with the Winston cigarette girl who knew next to nothing about football, but she was a sexy brunette. Well, to make a long story short, Marjorie Margot stayed the rest of that season producing her and told TV Guide in a piece, the reason uh, w uh, we have women on the show is because we don't want women sitting at home knitting or just opening beer cans for their husbands. <laughs> Rich, you referenced this earlier, but I, I think you suggested that there was a maybe a direct or maybe indirect correlation between the growth of the NFL and pro football and this particular program, the NFL today. Could you explain that? Well, the, the more popular the NFL today, you have, you have to go back to 75. There, there were only three stations, ABC, right. CBS, and NBC. There was no cable. There was no CNN. There was no ESPN. Um, ESPN was still six years away. There was no internet. There, if, unless you had an AP ticker in your living room, there was no way to get news about football. And the NFL was becoming more popular and people were starved. Fans were starved for information. And here comes this show with these three personalities and a lot more news. And they open up showing you a uh, whip around in the stadiums. And Brent says, you are looking alive. Well, that was for the gamblers. 
because mm. they wanted to know what the weather was. So the gamblers tuned in. You were looking live at Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia or Soldier Field in Chicago, and you knew if it was raining or if it was cold or if it, if it was 100 degrees. Uh, there was so much more going on with this show. People were rushing home from church or rearranging their church-going schedules not to miss the show. The first year the show won 13 Emmy Awards. Incredible. So that, that audience really grew. And as the league became more popular, the show became more popular. And, and it, it, it is really uh, uh, almost uh, a given that it helped the league get more fans and a bigger audience. Uh, and it overtook baseball as America's number one sport. Rich, two more for me. Thanks so much for your time. Can't wait to read this book, Richard. Uh, one, Rich, the dynamics. The dynamics on the set as the years went by. Rich, was it all kumbaya or did tensions creep in uh, as the years went by with, with these main protagonists? Ira, the more popular the show got, um, the more the, the four of them fought for airtime. It was only a 30-minute show in those days and only 22 minutes of actual um, news uh, was allotted to it. The rest were commercials and promos. So 22 minutes was split up among the four people. And when they were on the air, Brent was in control. And when he had an extra 20 or 30 seconds, he usually threw it to either Irv for a more analysis or to Phyllis for a comment or the Greek for what he thought the odds would be. Well, the Greek always thought he was getting the short end of the stick. And he complained all the time about not getting enough airtime. He had a segment on the show called The Greek's Grapevine, where he was supposed to bring insider news. And uh, most of the time, the producers and Brent felt that he was only bringing in tips from his pal, Al Davis, the owner of the, the uh, Raiders. Oakland Raiders. So they were kind of getting tired of it. And one Sunday in October of 1980, the Greek had a legitimate piece of news and that was that Notre Dame was going to fire their coach, uh, Dan Devine, and bring in a high school coach named Jerry Faust from Akron, Ohio. They rehearsed it, but when they went on the air, instead of the Greek letting, I mean, instead of Brent saying, what do you got for us, Greek? Brent blurted out the news. The Greek was left tongue-tied and <laughs> was furious the rest of the day. And when they ran into each other that night at Pear Trees, one thing led to another. The Greek said some really nasty things. And then Brent said, you know, Greek, this is according to producer Ted Shaker, Brent said, Greek, I can make you disappear anytime I want. At that point, the Greek hit Brent square in the face. And everybody separated everybody else. It made the Washington Post the next day. It was the front page in the New York papers. And a week later, we got the highest rating ever on the NFL today. Rich, Rich, if, if they ever went at it, I, I got the Greek as a four to one favorite. Uh, Rich. I'm with you. I'm with you. Uh, Rich, last, last one for me, Rich. Um, I'm going to throw you a curveball, but it's a good one. Uh, Rich, you, you are a man of many interests, varied interests. And beyond sports, there's music. And I know, uh, I know Clark wants to talk to you about a particular guy. But Rich, you've written books on Don Kirshner and Neil Sedaka. 
And of course, you know, I'm a child of the 60s and the 50s, Rich. So here's my question. Both very associated with the Brill building, Rich. There's been documentaries written about it, books written about it. Rich, succinctly, what is the impact of the Brill building on the history of, of rock and roll? Um, the Brill building, actually, both those guys worked uh, down the street from the Brill building at 1650 Broadway. Uh, the Brill building was at 1619 Broadway. Um, and the, the Brill, Brill building was a 10-story building where it uh, couldn't get, when it was built uh, around uh, 1929, it, it, it was supposed to be uh, the, the biggest building in New York, and they had to cut it short after the crash on Wall Street. And they couldn't fill it with uh, the kind of companies they wanted. And eventually music publishers started to move in. And uh, it was the place where all the teenage songwriters tried to go to sell their, the songs they had written. And they would go in the Brill building and knock on the publisher's doors. And uh, the publishers mostly were Tin Pan Alley guys and hated the teenage songwriters. And uh, you had great songwriters uh, uh, sitting in the hallways, eating their brown bag lunches, singing their songs to one another. And one of those songwriters was a guy named Don Kirshner with his partner, uh, Walden Robert Casado. Uh, Walden Robert Casado changed his name to Bobby Darren. And uh, they met all the other great songwriters. And when Darren made it big as a performer, Kirshner said, I'm going to start my own song publishing business and give all these kids with great songs a chance because none of these idiot publishers will. And within a couple of, of weeks, he had Neil Sedaka, then he got Carol King, then he got Barry Mann, and uh, he was off to the races. In five years, his firm produced over 200 hit songs, every one of them you know, Ira. And he also had that great show Don Kirshner's rock concert. Yeah. Yes, he did. That was that was a great show. It was really the first rock and roll show of its kind. Uh, he was a really uh, a funny host with his Brooklyn accent, uh, but uh, he refused <laughs> to give it up, which is why he lost the show after a dozen years. But um, he was an interesting guy, and uh, he's really responsible for the growth of so many great young songwriters, many of which I mentioned. And he also discovered uh, Tony Orlando. Um, when Tony Orlando was 15 years old, he told him he was gonna be a big star and Tony didn't believe him. And uh, he went home to New Jersey and Kirshner had to uh, track him down. He found him, he brought him back, got his mother to sign and he recorded Tony Orlando's first album when he was 16 years old as a producer, not just a song publisher. Uh, Kirshner was, was a brilliant guy. Uh, after he sold the business, he stayed on to help develop the Monkees and uh, the Archies and a song called Sugar Sugar, which was the number one song of the year. We're going to have to get Rich back on here to just talk about rock and roll. You know that. Right. <laughs> I love listening to his stories. And by the way, Ira, that, that Don Kirshner program, that was on too late for me because I'm a lot younger than you. I couldn't stay up those hours at that time. I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> that, that, book, that book is called Don Kirshner, The Man with the Golden Ear for anybody who wants uh, about 30 more great stories. 
Those were (laughs) good. I'd love to read that one as well. I want to ask you in terms of great stories. You have a favorite anecdote. I chose the book. There it is. There you go. To look for. You're looking live. You're looking live. We are looking live. We're listening live to Rich Podolsky. And and Rich, um, do you have a great, you have a favorite anecdote about the the CBS Today, about the uh, NFL Today broadcast? I mean, you gave us one that was terrific. I love the Jimmy the Greek story with with Brunt Musburger. Is there another that comes to mind without giving away the details of uh, your book? Well, when when Jane Kennedy, Phyllis George left the show after her failed first marriage, she needed time away and they didn't know how much time. So they, they, uh, excuse me, they, they uh, told all the, the uh, uh, agencies out there, the talent agencies to give them a list of their 10, 10 best people. Uh, Jane Kennedy was already out in Hollywood uh, doing uh, a show, shows on a series uh, like uh, the $6 million man as guest by and ICM was her agent and they wouldn't put her on the show. They said, oh, they don't want a black and they only want somebody with a sports background. Well, she had to go out of her around them to get an interview. They wound up bringing in 16 people for a live audition in New York. She won the audition. um, And after going through all that and being told she had the job, the uh, uh, interim president of CBS Sports, Frank Smith, said, you know, Jane, uh, we can't uh, say for sure it's your job until we get the okay from the Southern affiliates. Oh, boy. And Jane uh, said the reason was was that if she would be added to the set, it would be her and Irv Cross and Brent on the set, and that would be two blacks and one white, and the way they solved it, according to Jane, was they brought Jimmy the Greek onto the set to even it out, and the Southern affiliates approved her hiring. Yeah, yeah I guess Brent didn't make Jimmy the Greek disappear then. Uh, uh, by the way, uh, when they were when they were uh, uh, searching for the replacement, Bino Cook's line, which is the title of the chapter, the greatest talent hunt since Scarlett O'Hara. <laughs> <laughs> Rich, last one for me. I, actually, we could do this for a lot longer, but last one for me. Well, what did you learn about the broadcast that you didn't know before in your research for the book? Did you learn something? You probably learned a lot, but there's something in particular that you learned that you didn't know before you started looking into it? When I came on the show in 77, um, I had been covering the NFL prior to that. So I really didn't get to see the show when it changed dramatically in 1975 and 1976, I had to go back and watch the tapes to familiarize myself because I was at the stadiums covering games. Um, So in my research, when I realized all this was going on, plus in 1975, for the very first time, CBS was able in their halftime show America highlights of other games for the very first time. The only way anybody ever saw highlights of other games was they had to wait till Monday night halftime when Cosell voiced over uh, highlights that NFL films had put together. CBS in 1975 on a live show figured out how to get the the tapes cut and uh, uh, lines written for Brent 
send it up, get it in the right order, and get it on the air. And this was really incredibly incredible technology for the time. Rich Podolsky, thanks so much for the time and best. I, I have one question for, for Ira before I go, if you don't mind. Ira, you asked me about why Brent isn't uh, winner of the Pete Rozelle Award. Why do you think he is? I just think it's an incredible oversight, Rich. Um, it probably is. Maybe it's he's more, maybe they associate him more with college football, but I think that's, I, I, I don't think that's legitimate, Rich. I really don't. I, I think he'll eventually get it. Rich, you know, just to point out, we, we're not involved in that process. We yeah, don't. I, I, like I said, I don't know what the politics are there. Right. Thanks, thanks, guys. I really thanks so much. Very much. Yeah, th that was fun, thanks, Rich. Rich. Thanks so much. We'll back, have you back on here to talk about Todd Rundgren and rock music. You bet. <laughs> that was Rich Podolsky, author of You Are Looking Live, How the NFL Today Revolutionized Sports Broadcasting. Now, Ira, I got to be honest with you. You and I both watched and lived through that era of the NFL today with Phyllis George, Irv Cross, Jimmy the Greek. I loved watching it. And I loved watching it particularly for Phyllis George. I thought she was engaging, but also, you know, especially uh, attractive. And, you know, Clark, we take it for granted now that we have all these pregame shows that yeah. start at 11, 11 o'clock in the morning. And before 75, Clark, none of that existed. You'd go no, right, right to the, you know, you go right to the one o'clock kickoff. And you, you don't know what you don't know what the heck's going on in the league. You think about the gamble then? I mean, to put a woman on there, um, first African-American and then Jimmy the Greek, a professional sports better. Yeah. And the ratings took off. He's right. I mean, 13 Emmys in the first year. But it was a can't miss program. It really was. I mean, um, I wasn't covering games then, but I always tuned in to watch it. Um, it's and as, not because um, I was betting. <laughs> Clark, it's as groundbreaking in its own way as the eye test for two. Just in its own way. You know? Yeah, that's true. And and, and I, I, I loved what he's talking about. <laughs> you know, when the Greek ran into uh, Musburger and says, I can make you disappear anytime you want. Well, guess what? We're going to make all of us disappear right now because we got to go. But for our listeners, don't touch that dial because we're going to return tomorrow to talk about Ian's favorite subject. That would be Tom Terrific. Tom Brady and his return to Foxborough. But through, through the eyes of another. In the meantime, I'm Clark Judge. I'm Ira Kaufman. And on behalf of us and Ian Glendon, thanks for listening to what, Ira? The eye test for two, Clark. Eye test yeah. for two. You got it. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening.